Hello, today we have Mandy Hazard. What a rock star name. But an important story. I've been writing a series of books about the war on drugs, and one of the things I discovered was researching the history of weed. Queen Victoria's doctor had identified weed, the cannabis plant, as the most medicinal plant on the face of the earth. And it was the early laws that came in in California from the pharmaceutical societies prohibiting marijuana because they didn't want people growing medicine in their own backyards. And that was just a small seed that was planted for what Big Pharma did. And the foundation for that was laid with Harry Anslinger, the racist drug czar, who was the future undersecretary um, future son-in-law of, of Mellon, Mellon Bank, who had investments in all the competitor industries to cannabis. And then they got William Randolph Hearst on board to put out the propaganda. If you're a black man or a Mexican smoking weed, you want to rape every white woman in sight. But at the end of the day, it was all about the money, <coughs> keeping the competition out of the loop. Now, researching the subject myself, I wrote about the case of Dennis Hill. Dennis Hill was a biochemist diagnosed with prostate cancer, told, go basically, 98% fatal, you, you got no chance. And he had a hippie friend out of California, and she said, hey, have you looked into the cannabis oil? And Dennis said, what are you talking about? I'm a biochemist. That's ridiculous. You know, this couldn't possibly affect my cancer in any way. Anyway, he researched it, and he was convinced, and he stopped his chemo. He had it scheduled, and he didn't engage in it, so it was just pure oil that he took. And then on the x-rays, it had gone. He cured himself with cannabis oil. And that is, from his analysis of it and his research, he says that the THC, there's like a double whammy, THC, CBD, double whammy, but the, the THC, the active ingredient, the ingredient that's illegal, is, is essential because... It causes the can, uh, the cancer, the immune system to be able to identify it because it's it, it's very sneaky, it's disguised. But the cannabis oil makes it exposes it to the immune system, and the immune system can can identify it. But perhaps um, I will learn a lot more today speaking to Mandy Hazard because she has gone through a very similar situation. But before we get to the cancer, do you just want to tell us a bit about your you know? your life before, where you were at, how you got to that point in your life? Um, <clears throat> okay, I uh, grew up in South Africa and uh, had a great life, uh, very sort of, you know, sunshine and good food and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, never was sick at all with anything. Um, and I suppose I wasn't living my best version. I pushed the boundaries. I was having fun. I, you know, didn't um, didn't do all the right things. Didn't did, stick did have, a job. Did they have raves in South Africa? Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> they did outdoor raves in the sunshine. Ooh, love <laughs> yeah. those desert raves. Oh yeah, Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there there was uh, yeah there was a lot of partying in South Africa. And then when I was twenty, I moved to the UK, and so spent a lot of time just partying, smoking weed. Why did you come to the UK? 
Uh, we lived in um, in a place called the Transvaal, um, and it was quite a dangerous area. We lived uh, in on a small holding, so it was out of the town. Lots of farmers and sort of open space. We lived about 10k. And uh, there was a few things. My mother was driven off the road. My dad was working away from home a lot on contracts. I was away at university. And uh, so it was just my mom and my sister at home. And so there was a couple of occasions of a bit of violence. The garden, uh, the gardener was shot. The dog was shot. My mom was driven off the road. And she, she said, right, I've had enough. She's very much a pacifist and didn't want to get a gun, which everybody has in South Africa. And so they decided to move us all back to the UK in so, 1990. So you were 20, did you say? Yeah, just turned 20. And you ended up in Glasgow in a taxi? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up in Glasgow in a lot of places, what, actually. What, what happened in the taxi? <laughs> uh, because I was a white South African, um, he obviously you know, knew everything there was to know about South African and South African politics and what happens in white, what white South Africans He heard your unknown. accent, did he? He heard my accent, The taxi yes. driver. Yeah. And what did he say to you? He said, uh, you're a white South African, so you're a racist. You have slaves, and I don't uh, take people like that in my taxi. So he chucked me out. And are you racist and do you have slaves? No. <laughs> <laughs> you were a kid. You were just 20 year old. Exactly. Basically. I mean, yeah. there was a, and you know, we, we were also very protected. The South African government had complete control over the media. So you didn't know anything. I mean, we were, there were times when there were riots in Alexandria, which is a township near where we lived. And um, my mother would get a phone call from the UK to say, like, are you, is everyone all right? And we didn't even know the riots were going on. Yeah. So it was very protected, um, very separate so you yeah we didn't know until we've had a lot a bit older. Of, we've had a lot of podcast guests on from glasgow shout out to johnny boy steel shout out to ian blink mcdonald after interviewing these people i'm wondering did you feel safer in glasgow than south africa no because i lived in govan <laughs> i actually moved to a place called govan ian, ian blink mcdonald danny dyer's deadliest man uh, were doing a show and they went out to interview him. They found the bomb on his car. They shit themselves and came back to London and cancelled the project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't trust the Glaswegians. They're hardcore. Yeah. They're yeah. hardcore. So how long are you in Glasgow for? Five years. Five years? Yeah, I lived in five. I lived there for five years. So were you at like college age then? Um, university age? Yeah, I went to university again. I didn't finish university in South Africa because we moved away before we finished. What had you studied? Social sciences. Why are we interested in that? I like to know how people work. Uh, how, to, how you know what? I, I'm interested in how people function and how they work. And yeah, so, me too. And um, I like to ask a lot of questions and find out. That's why I love my job because I get to ask really quite personal questions. And so I like it's it's it's, it's um, it helps me, you know. So. You f you complete that course in Glasgow, do you then? No, I didn't complete that course. I decided to get married and uh, I had a breakdown and I was smoking too much hash actually at what, the time. What caused the breakdown? Basically smoking too much hash, living with an alcoholic who was a lot older than me. I didn't realize sort of I was quite naive. I was very naive in my younger 20s. And... Um, yeah, I think living in Glasgow, uh, not being happy, really, um, and smoking far too much hash. And, uh, yeah, got very depressed and got actual depression. Were your, the rest of your family, were they in intervening at this point or were you just out on your own? Uh, I had, I had, 
isolated myself. I was living with my my fiance and in Glasgow. My parents were living down in air. My sister was in the army. She was always around. And um, I think when you get like that, I, I isolated myself. His parents just lived around the corner, but um, I didn't feel like I could speak to anybody. You know, I'm, I'm, I've always been a person who's got a front, you know, who's got a persona. And what happens behind that is, is you know, so, so to take that out and bring it around to the front wasn't an option. Did you have reverse culture shock? I'll give you an example. I moved to a high flat. You know the high flats in Glasgow? <clears throat> I moved on Plain Street, which is on a hill. And uh, I moved into the old caretaker's house. So I had come from a five-acre property with a house on two of the acres and a pond and a borehole and dogs and, you know, all that and a car, two cars, la, 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 into Plain Street. This flat, which was freezing cold, didn't have a carpet, had a gap in the window on purpose in freezing cold Glasgow, which I immediately stuffed up. And uh, one day I went down to the concierge and uh, he said to me, oh, there's been an accident. A girl had fallen out of the seventh floor on the opposite flat, had only hurt her ankles because she was so off her face. She was on crack or heroin or whatever. I don't even know. I was just like, oh, my God, she fell off. She didn't even hurt herself. She didn't even hurt herself. She didn't die. And that was, yeah. And I'd come home from wherever I was and there'd be, you know, little kids like freezing colds at three o'clock in the morning, lying on the mat in front of the door because their parents were out doing whatever. Yeah, that was a massive... I didn't even know that world existed. What about the accents then? Does the South African accent transfer over to Glaswegian and vice versa? Or were you having difficulties? I love Johnny Boy Steele, but some of the things he said were hard for me to understand. My mother was... My mother comes from Glasgow, but um, she... She came from Mary Hill, or Scary Hill, as they call it there. <laughs> but they moved to Lincoln Avenue. So they sort of, they, you know, and then my mother left when she was a thing. But so I'm used to the Glaswegian accent. Uh, and I grew up okay. listening to Billy Connolly and, you know, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And and so Glas- Glasgow wasn't a problem for me to understand. And I, and I got a job in Littlewoods in the food hall, mm. which was scary as hell. <laughs> really, really scary. There was Big Linda, Small Linda. They all had like seven brothers and lived in Easter House. And yeah, I actually went there once. I was, my eyes were just like this the whole time. So yeah, culture. So it sounds like you were in a bit of a rut. How did you pull yourself out of that psychologically? Uh, so I got married uh, and then... Went on honeymoon, came back, realized it was all terrible. There was like he'd been drinking all the money and the house was being, the banks had written and all sorts of stuff. And um, so he, so we decided that, that I would go back to South Africa and uh, find a bar. And we'd buy a bar and run a bar. And he would sell his flat in Govan and he would come over and help me run the bar. Drink, Good idea. And drink all the profits. <laughs> we thought it was an excellent idea. <laughs> anyway, I went over to South Africa because it was November in 95, November 95, which was one of the coldest winters they've had. The, the Clyde froze over apparently a week after I left, which I was very happy about. Uh, so I went over to South Africa, back to where my friends were and stopped smoking all the, the hash, had sort of put some distance so I could sort of see things and um, gradually that sort of fell apart I didn't uh, I I sort of came out of the depression by leaving and changing my whole life and not smoking hash anymore and that sort of thing and so that sort of happened so then I ended up in South Africa so you're back in South Africa yeah and what is your focus while you're there 
<clears throat> I don't think I really had any focus as such. It was more just like, well, I'm here and I'm working and I'm just being here. Is this I in your late really 20s, is mid it? Mid-20s, yeah. Okay. I had no focus. I had no plan. I was just visiting and living and traveling and, you know, seeing people and partying a lot. And, and then I ended up in Cape Town, which was that was just party, party every single weekend, loads of ease parties every weekend uh, for about a year. And then drove up to, in a little beetle, drove up to the Joburg from Cape Town and um, yeah, stayed there for a while and then went back to South Africa, back, back to England after two years. What part of England? Oh, sorry, Scotland. I went back to Scotland, to Glasgow. No, oh. Air. My mother was in Air then. So how did you pick up your life in Glasgow again? Um, I got a job in a pub. And uh, met a guy and uh, we started going out and he had to leave air because he'd uh, had a very, he was a bouncer in a, in a biker club that I was working in and him and his mate had um, had a altercation with a, with a customer in the club upstairs and had badly damaged him mentally, very badly and had to leave. But I didn't know that bit. So he said, oh, I'm going to Holland to be a scaffolder. And I was like, hmm, never been to Holland before. I'll come too. And so ended up in Holland. So in your 20s and 30s, how many countries did you go to? Uh, well, when I was in South Africa, I actually traveled to Mozambique and I stayed there for a while as well. So there, um, Holland, and then I went back to London. Um, so Scotland, England, South Africa. Was it all plain sailing or did you get any any situations? Um, well, the the boyfriend that I'd moved to Holland with, so we got into it. Was it started to become a bit of a violent sort of situation against you or other people? Against well, you? yeah. So, I mean, I'm a mouthy cow, and I'm not saying I'm not justifying that, but it doesn't help in a, you know in certain situations. So I don't I don't learn, I haven't I never learned how to keep my mouth shut. It's very so then the situations would escalate. Mm. And so we decided that he would still work there and I would go back to London and I would get a job there and work there. So we went back there. Anyway, it was a disaster because we were, we moved to Crawley and Purley, in fact, lived above a kebab shop. And Crawley, I got a job did you cr cr uh, Crawley. In Crawley. Yeah, Purley. Purley? Is it Pearl? Crawley's near Gatwick. Yeah. Croydon. 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 Okay, South London. Yes, Croydon. Yeah. And uh, so then, yeah, it didn't really work out. To sort of, We had a month there and it was a bit, you know, no, 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 anyway. So then my dad happened to be living in Enfield. So I said, right, I'm leaving, I'm splitting up, and I went to stay with my dad in Enfield. So then I went to Enfield and got a job there and met my second husband. That was uh, – I met him 11 weeks later, I got married. He was – he was um, – an angry young man, lots mm. of drugs. Drugs don't help that sort of thing. So there was lots of cocaine and booze and, yeah, so lots of boundaryless behavior and fun and disasters. So how many years were you partying for? <clears throat> Until I was about 45. And what made you just settle down? When I was 40, I got cancer. So How did you know? <clears throat> um... When I was growing up, there was a, there was a, 
perpetual calendar on the back of the toilet. My mother had stuck a tea towel there. And I used to sit and look and see where I would be when I was 40. And I became obsessed with this, where am I going to be? Am I going to be alive? And I'd heard something about my uncle didn't want to be 40. So 40 became a big, massive thing. And two years before I turned 40, I had um, chronic diarrhea from God. And I didn't know what. And I was going to doctors and things and no one found anything. And then we moved to Spain in the January and two weeks later I was in a hospital and that's where they discovered that I had a big tumour. Um, so that situation happened and then we had three years of free fun, basically. We thought we dodged a bullet, didn't really realise I had cancer, you know. So you thought you had a tumour but it wasn't cancer? Well, it was a tumour and it was a it was cancer but... I didn't understand the language and the doctors were sort of saying it's inconclusive. We don't really know. You don't need chemo. You don't need radiation. Um, something about, yeah, we need, you just need to have blood tests. And somebody mentioned Steve Jobs and, and then we were out. I was out. So you thought that was it? Uh, seriously. I had, a, I had a, an eight-hour operation. I was so out of it, didn't know what was going on. Um, I remember the um, anesthetist, I had to have... Uh, dialysis to clean my blood because my body was shutting down i'll tell so, you i'll so tell you what so happened. the operation was to remove i ended up in hospital because they thought i had food poisoning steve was still in the uk then and then i was getting worse and worse and then steve came over and they said to him we're doing everything we can for her but she's failing her she's not going to make tonight she's going to die people watching the video are going to be wondering who steve is now because you just mentioned his name okay so steve's my husband from um, my third husband and he's been with me the whole journey we met in London and we've been together for and, and he gave you the hazard name and he gave me the hazard name <laughs> the cool <Yes>. name <laughs> uh, so um, they told him that I was going to die that night because there was no there was no hope they couldn't do anything there was no medicine my my organs were failing I had my bloods were you know no calcium ridiculous amounts of this and that and uh, so that's what's going to happen tonight my sister was in Paris and so he phoned Teresa and said uh, Mandy's not going to make the night <clears throat> so you need to breathe you need to come back mm -hmm. so she flew back and um, he stayed in ICU he stayed in the ICU box and the nurse was coming and saying look you need to go now you really need to go and he's like no, I won't make any noise I'll just be here I'll be very small nothing you know six foot six he's going to be very small and it's hard to say to Steve you have to do this you know but she was a very good nurse and so he said my sis her sister's coming I'll do a deal with you I'll go if you let her sister come in and say goodbye and so she said yes so he went and Teresa came I don't remember any of that and Are then conscious no there's little bits of in and out, but I was very dehydrated and then on a lot of drugs. And I remember Steve um, at one stage was um, just going to have a sip of water. Yeah, okay. help yourself. No worries. Um, Steve was trying to make me kind of focus and um, and fight and not, you know, and not, not um, give up. Yeah. So Let's he was sorry. So he was um, headbutting me in the bed <laughs> and he was like dunk dunk and he's going Mandy listen to me and I'm going what <laughs> it's like I need you to focus I need you to say I'm going to fight I'm going to do this yeah, say yes say yes dunk 
Duncan. Like, Jesus Christ, fuck off. And I said it so there. So he um, and a lot of people that night knew because a friend of ours had got on the Facebooks and sort of tried to contact as many of my friends as possible and, you know, tell everybody what was happening. So which, there, which hospital was this? Clinica Benidorm in Benidorm. Well, I'm definitely not going to die in Benidorm. So, um, born in Glasgow, died in Benidorm. It's not going to fit on the grave, gravestone, is it? Um, so, uh, there was a lot of people around the world. I've got a lot, of, a lot of connections, and everybody was wishing and praying and for that night. And I believe that that power of intention got me through because I certainly didn't get through on my own. I mean, I don't know what happened. How, how old were you? Did you say you were forty or? 40. 40, okay. Yeah, just turned 40. And um, so then Teresa and Steve came in in the morning, and I hadn't died. And this doctor said, look, we've, we could do dialysis. It's very um, not very comfortable to, to do. It's very painful and, you know, and all of this. But we could do it. What do you think? And Steve said, well, if this was your daughter or your wife, what would you do? And he said, well, she'd be up there. So I went up and I had... Uh, I think about eight hours of dialysis. I was fighting the machines. I was tied to the bed. Um, and never never been a very easygoing kind of person. <laughs> God, don't tell me what to do or tie me up. And um, so then I had the dialysis. And then the anesthetist came to see if I was strong enough and slapped me. My sister's a bodyguard, so he nearly got punched in the face. And I swore at him. And so he said, yes, she's a fighter. She can go through. And then... Um, they tried to make me sign something, um, which I insisted I had to read first. Couldn't really even focus. So Teresa's screaming in my ear and uh, the pen wouldn't work. And so anyway, I went into the operation, um, saw everybody on the side, thought I was being driven into a garage and uh, sort of went, they'll never take me alive. Just like that, which, <laughs> which kind of like broke everybody's like, oh, God, right. And uh, yeah, then I insulted the surgeon but not just through not knowing, you know, what I was. I was like, are you cold, you pussy? <laughs> <laughs> and then I had an eight, a six or seven hour operation and they removed a 15 centimeter by 20 centimeter tumor. Did you get to see it when it, after, after that one? I've got a photo of it, actually. You've got a photo of it? You've yeah. got it with you? Uh, yeah, it's in my, I've, I've got a stick. You can put it on the podcast if oh. you want. You don't have to see it. It looks a bit horrible, actually. It's not like he's oh. freaking out. Look, he's gone all gray. Anyway... <laughs> So it was a big, big tumor, and uh, they took out my spleen, 15 centimeters of my colon, and the tail of my pancreas, which is what it started on, and um, gave me, that was it. So then took all that out, and then- Did they say what kind of cancer that was? Well, luckily the doctor that I had, or the the surgeon that I had, who we call Dr. Amazing- Um, Dr. Diego, he realized what it was. Mm. And so he, um, he knew that it, 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 because it's an encapsulating, it's a, it's a tumor that, that encapsulates itself. It doesn't, it didn't and doesn't really infiltrate the organs. Mm. So I never, the only problem I had was diarrhea. And that was because the tumor gives off its own hormone. There's two types of pancreatic cancer. Mine was creating a hormone that, caused a lot of calcitonin calcium and so I was having chronic diarrhea so this surgeon knew that was the type of cancer it was but 
there's functioning and non-functioning types. So they didn't know that. But they just needed to get it out. So they got it out. There were surgeons from Valencia, doctors from Alicante. It was a crowded surgery that day. Functioning and non-functioning means what? One gives off um, a hormone and others don't. So uh, there's four types. Steve Jobs had the same type of cancer as I do. Um, his is insulinoma. So his cancer gave off more insulin than your body needs. And so he would have had symptoms like like a diabetic would have. Um, mine is somatostatinoma, which is but more rare. Um, one in 40 million people get it apparently. And my that hormone everybody has of a level of one to four. And it's little next to the um, thyroid gland. And it looks after all the other hormones. But mine was a 2000, the, the, the thing. So they knew by, by that marker that it was that type of cancer. And, um, and after that, then it, was, then it was like to make sure that I wasn't, you know, the pancreas wasn't leaking inside and all of that. And in Spain, when you're done, they give you all your stuff. And they sort of, and it's all in Spanish, and they kind of give you a report, which I didn't even, I just took to my GP and didn't bother after that. And they said, and they said, you didn't need chemo, you don't need radiation, you just need to be tested every so, every six months. So I had a blood test every six months. And for three years, we had an inordinate amount of fun, to be honest. Four day wedding, and went around the world. Um, went to South Africa and then on the honeymoon the symptoms started again mm. so I kind of ignored it you know where were you on your honeymoon South Africa okay yeah which part we were in the well this uh, we were in we went all the way around but uh, when I started sort of really thinking about it was on the garden route what's that the bit between Cape Town and PE Port Elizabeth is a, a very, very beautiful area. It's where you can watch whales and, you know, it's the Indian Ocean. So the, the Atlantic Ocean stops there and the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean starts there. And so Indian Ocean is cold and the, ugh, the Atlantic is cold and the Indian's hot. And so it creates this amazing Mediterranean-y kind of little area, which is completely different from the rest of South Africa. It rains in the summer. You know, it's very pretty. Cape Town is beautiful. Um, very natural and so the garden route is very natural so yeah so you're on this idyllic honeymoon and what was the first symptoms diarrhea same symptom any other symptoms no did you just write it off as maybe you know I've, I've ate something funny it's not it's not coming back or anything no I knew exactly what it was really right yep. away yeah and how did that make you feel psychologically well, because I didn't really believe that it was cancer, because inconclusive got said a lot, I didn't really panic that much. I just thought, oh, I'm just going to have to go through that again. You know, it was more of a pain in the ass than cancer, because I didn't really believe it. So then I ignored it because I was on honeymoon and all of that. And then when I got home, I went for the test and a PET CT scan. And the interpreter, who we'd known for a few years, said, phoned me up and said, right, you have to come in and see the, see the oncologist on Monday. This was on the Friday. And I said, oh, is it serious? And she says, oh, just come. We'll explain everything. And so um, 
I looked up oncologist. That's how bad I was. Mm. I really didn't pay attention. Really not. I looked up oncologist, focused on the word growth, ignored the rest, and turned up at the um, oncology meeting, fully expecting to be told, oh, it'll be fine. We'll just give you an operation again, and, you know, that'll be it. But he looked very grave and said, um, okay, you've got a tumor mass on your pancreas and six to eight lesions. Oh, no, he said you've got a, uh, you've got a mass on your pancreas, never said tumor, never said cancer the whole time, and six to eight lesions on your liver. And I was like, hmm. And I said, what's a lesion? And she said, and he said, it's a tumor. And I was like, and he said, you've got cancer. I said, no, no. <laughs> I said, no, no, it's a mistake. No, they said it was inconclusive. It's not cancer. It's this special kind. He said, she looked at me, the interpreter, and she goes, Mandy, you have cancer now and you had cancer then. And it's quite serious. And then he explained, it's, there's not, no medicine, really, because the pharmaceutical companies drive all the research. Any research that gets done, the farmer pays for it because it's a lot of money and they've got a lot of money and they have a vested interest in selling the product. So they'll pay. So you need the pharmaceutical industries have incredibly strict rules on how to get a medicine to market. And one of them is you need 100 people with exactly the same situation, exactly the, tr the same treatment they've had, etc., in order to have a clear and results-driven um, medicine. And there aren't 100 people who have this. And they're not really that interested because there's not 100 people to do the trials. There's not going to be 100 people to sell the medicine to. Mm. So there's that's okay. Steve Jobs, it, it gives it, – it also, when you – if you look at it like this, there's no option, which means you've got any option you want – because the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to be forcing you to have chemo and they aren't going to be forcing you to have surgery and they, or the doctors or the, you know, then none of that can happen. So you can actually go, well, then I want to try, then I want to do natural and I want to do this and I've heard vitamin C and, and apricot kernels and, you know, and that sort of thing. So maybe a situation like that, if you're that kind of person, you can go, well, then I can, then I, the world is my oyster. I can eat mushrooms till the cows come home and, you know. So you know that now, but coming out of that oncology meeting, what was your game plan at that stage of your life? So the doctor said there's there's two pills, there's a, an injection that you would get once a month and that stops the symptoms. So that basically keeps that calcitonin level down to a manageable level and until that stops working. In the meantime, you've got two growth inhibitors, which are like biochemo tablets. Very, very strong. They don't sound – biochemo sounds a bit soft, but it's not at all. So it's a tablet that you take. He says they're very difficult to tolerate. Most people don't tolerate at least the first one for very long and the second one a couple of months. What does a growth inhibitor do? So cancer, one specific characteristic of, uh, characteristic of cancer is that it – proliferates it grows it doesn't stop growing it never stops growing your your other healthy cells they take they don't grow all the time they don't grow so fast sometimes otherwise you'd have all sorts of weird growths and weirdness about you so but cancer grows and so when you have a growth inhibitor it stops that process so you're trying to keep a stable you're looking for a stable result so this isn't a cure this is reducing the symptoms and stopping 
the growth. Exactly. Exactly. That's all that you had available to you at that point in time. Exactly. And that stopping the growth, remember that your other body bodily cells also do grow. And so like your immune system is a constantly growing, making new cells. It's a constantly changing system. So the growth inhibitors are going to stop your healthy cells from yes. growing, it, which is going to cause other things. Exactly. So when you're on those drugs, you have to have blood tests every two weeks to check your immune system because it breaks your immune system down. And the first set of drugs that I took, I was on, all my uh, creases in my fingers got infected. And so I couldn't. I had to wear gloves. My feet were infected. Old scars got infected because my immune system was breaking down. So they took me off that. But, yeah, that's what the doctor said. So then I got in the car and we drove home and I was in a bit of a daze, no plan. Uh, oh, because he said to me, because this was private insurance, um, he said, you should think about going back to the UK because the insurance won't pay this and you haven't got enough money this is too expensive those drugs are six thousand euros a month the the second lot that's in germany that's how much those drugs cost i don't know how much they cost in the uk in spain they cost about four three and a half thousand a month so just to translate that then so that's um seven eight thousand pounds i think or 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 dollars it's it's up there as well maybe nearly ten thousand dollars so that is staggering, that amount of money. You don't have it. So what are you going to do? So I went home and went to bed, basically, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I went home and I remember just kind of like not really knowing what I was going to do or not really kind of – I don't remember having any clear thoughts at all. I just sort of – but you know what? I thought, well, okay, I've got pancreatic cancer quite serious and nobody seems to be able to know it you know there's no options so that means i'm gonna die and then it was like okay that's that then so then it's just a matter of you know you kind of like if you don't if you know you're gonna die you're gonna die there's no getting away from it you know there's like okay well that's obviously that so you'd accepted that or were you in shock no i accepted it i accepted it as a well that's what's going to happen then it was just a matter of time and what was the uh, estimate on the amount of time left? It went from four months to four years, really, because it's the tolerating the drugs. Those drugs are really bad to difficult. So the so. drugs, it's the drugs that's going to kill you as well as the cancer. No, the yeah, well, the drugs if you keep taking them, well, but if you have to, you have to stop taking them because otherwise your immune system, you know, I had to walk around with a mask. I couldn't be in anyone who had any kind of illness at all. Uh, because it was yeah, so you're either going to die of of the flu, or um, yeah, of the cancer. So you obviously at some point started to look at alternatives to what you were on. Well, uh, my sister rang me at that point and said that her boss, who was very a very wealthy young woman, wanted me to go to Germany to a German oncology clinic, private German oncology clinic, to one of the best oncologists in the world, and she would pay for everything. Wow. And did that happen? Yeah. What What did they tell you? When I got there, they said, uh, we're going to throw everything at it, um, and we've got all this immune, we've got immune um, treatments, and we've got immune boosting, you know, your health. So, but they... They were, they were positive, but 
they were always going to be positive. Everybody that comes in, they're positive unless you're literally dying on this, you know, on the floor. They, they, they're not like that. They're not, they don't give you prognosis. They just, because the people that go there to those kind of clinics are normally, uh, are, are one, very, very wealthy, but have been through the usual sort of normal way of you get treated, but you have specialists that are better and better treatment. But the people that end up in those clinics are at the end of that. Those, their oncologists, their special London clinic has told them there's nothing more we can do for you. So go home and sort your shit out. And that's when people like that have got a lot of money. They can look anywhere in the world. And so they go to tourists, you know, the, the health tourists. They go to Germany and they get those sorts of specialists. So it's very hard for them to actually really help those patients, although a lot of patients do get helped, but a lot of patients die. And so they're not really, though, like, you know, they're not sort of first stage oncology. You've got this type of uh, time to, yeah. But they were positive, And so I went, not really expecting anything, to be honest, um, just expecting to die eventually. Um, but it was quite cool going to Germany and it was a really nice place. And, you know, the, the food was awesome and everybody was so nice to you. And it's a whole different class, the very, very wealthy it's a whole different world. It's very strange. But what prescriptions did they give you then? Though was it different from previous? <clears throat> so they, uh, in those private clinics, they can they have the ability to use any kind of medicine they want. So if you're a normal doctor, you've got a budget. You can only prescribe X, Y, and Z if within your budget, sort of thing. But they don't have a budget, so they can spend any amount of money they can get it. So I had. Um, immune therapy like Remivab, which is a mouse protein, it's a, it's a, a monoclonal antibody. Uh, so it's targeted. All, all, all these immune therapies and all the, all, the, all the treatments are targeted therapies. So your cancer expresses something, gives off messages, sends off messages into the blood because it's hungry and it wants to do things. You know, it has to feed itself, it has to procreate, it has to make blood, uh, make um, veins, it has lots to do. And so it has to have food. So it's like every other cell sends signals out. And so you can target by what signals there. So I've got a signal called, or a, a marker called EPCAM, and a high expression of EPCAM, which means my, that will react with the Remivab treatment. So Remivab is a very strong immune therapy and it's designed to make your immune system go absolutely batshit your hoo-ha. And it does. You get, I got a rash from head to toe. I had, I had false nails on because I'm going to a posh clinic, you know, I can't go with my bitten nails. So I've got my false nails on, which I'd bitten. And so there was, and was scratching my, my, it was so itchy. It was incredible. Um, I had a huge reaction uh, you get very, very cold, so cold that you're shivering, and then you get super hot so that you're just, everything comes off. Um, and that's a good reaction because your immune system, they test it, how many, num how many of these specific immune cells, and then they give you the Remivab, and then they test you again, and hopefully all those immune cells will have gone because they have to go away and get made new ones. It's like a sort of a, they're going to sort of power up. And um, and then you do the test again, and then your immune cells should be like triple or quadruple the amount they were at the beginning. And that's because of the antibody that you've taken. 
So I took that. I took ipilimumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, all these, um, Keytruda. Those were the medical things. Um, also, I had things like very high vitamin C. Um, so in cancer world, people say they take vitamin C for cancer because it's a natural chemotherapy. But the pharmaceutical companies are against it and doctors are against it. Make your own conclusions. Um, so it's actually quite hard to find in normal world um, anywhere that does high strength vitamin C infusions. So I was getting 30, 40 milligrams um, grams in um, Germany. Um, vitamin B17, which is uh, latrial, I think it's called, which is also found in um, apricot seeds, apricot kernels. And that's an anti-cancer thing, and it's an immune system. I had hypothermia, um, which they take your body up to 40 degrees temperature uh, over a long process. It's very nice. You get a nice hot bath, and then you get all put in this box, and there's a psychiatrist who's, you know, meditating with you and someone fanning you and, mm -hmm. you know, your brow and all this sort of stuff, a straw full of lemon water. It's <laughs> fucking great. And then you're in this hot box, and um, the, the point is to get your body up to fever pitch because – when your body's at fever pitch, it makes more immune cells. So what we're told to do is as soon as you get a fever, one, you should be working, so you have to quickly go back to work, so take some drugs to bring your fever down. But that's counteract, counter, it's, it's um, the wrong thing to do in your, where your immune system is. If your immune system is strong enough, it will make um, – it will, sorry, if your, if your immune system doesn't get restricted, it will build itself and be stronger when it has a fever. So that's, the, that's what they did. They take you up to 40 degrees and then they keep you there for an hour and then they take all the stuff and they wrap you all up. And um, yeah, as long as you possibly can be as hot as you possibly can. Um, ozone treatment like the bikes, the bikers, uh, cyclists take. What's that? They take your blood out, suck your blood out, and it goes into this little bottle. And then there's a big tank, and they add O2, ozone, which is O3, uh, O2. O, it's, it's oxygen, but it's more O molecules. And, um, and then they pump that into the bottle, and your, your blood goes really orange, and then they pump that back in. <laughs> so oxygen, cancer can't grow in an oxygenated environment, one. And it gives your cells energy, um, healthy energy. So... Cyclists, um, that's one way of they doping. So I had that um, wonderful organic food, you know, supplements, all that sort of stuff, incredible treatments. And did your symptoms start to reduce with all of these treatments? Uh, no. In the first year, so from March to December, I went three times to Germany and um, my cancer got worse. But physically, I was in great shape. Um, I'd put on a few pounds. <laughs> well, and uh, I was I was fit and healthy. My immune system was, you know, other than the the treatments, I was physically better. But my cancer had grown. But um, around that that How time, how did you learn it had grown? You have a PET scan every every three months. When you're when you're in cancer treatments, they every three months you're on a, you're on that schedule. Um, as your cancer starts to get better, then the, the schedules get longer. But every three months I would have a scan. 
So um, if it, if the cancer's growing, are you losing hope again? We were pretty depressed, to be honest. Um, it was, <laughs> Steve actually said, we, were, we we just got the bad results and we'd gone upstairs and we were in this um, thing and, you know, I was going, oh, doom. And he said, uh, oh, well, let's face it, you never were going to make 90, really, were you? <laughs> Which broke the ice completely and, and, and sort of brought it back to perspective, you know, because you do have to remember, you know, that. Uh, but just before that, uh, well, for about two months, I, we had discovered Rick Simpson and, you know, done all that. So that was about the time that we started doing the cannabis. Let's just expand on that a bit then. So in my latest book, um, Clinton Bush and CIA conspiracies from the boys on the tracks of Jeffrey Epstein, part four of my War on Drugs series, I do do the whole story of Rick Simpson in that book. Do you just want to give his story in a summary? Okay, so Rick Simpson is a Canadian who um, had cancer. I forget which one. Uh, but he had cancer. Um, he had done a lot of research and discovered how to extract the potent CB, the T- THC, and um, had worked out a treatment protocol, uh, worked out how much you need to take for the, uh, for, the, for the THC to have an effect on the cancer. And once you've got to that level, then you take that amount and it's a 90-day schedule. And so he had come up with this and had helped himself, cured his own cancer and cured a few people around him, quite a few people around him, um, and was very became very um, vocal in it, and so that's um, his method of extraction and method of treatment is still really the sort of recognised anti-cancer treatment, THC treatment. And he got raided by the police. He had to leave the country to keep it going. He wrote a book called "Run from the Cure." I know he had um, skin cancer, but he might have had some other kind of cancer as well. He was uh, part of, not the Freemasons, but some some um, group. And the chairman of the group, his dad had been, was, was about to die. And Rick says to him, well, try the, the, the oil. And the dad was reluctant because of all the propaganda about weed. And, but the dad did, and, and the dad um, was cured. And bounced back from death store. And this guy was like in his 90s or something. And the guy who was running this the, the club, I can't remember what, what the name of it was, um, some kind of business meeting it was, the, the, the club that they had. They were going to announce it to the world. They were, they were inviting the press and they were going to announce it all to the world. This stuff works. And when they came to the club that day, all the doors were locked. And they, they'd shut that faction of that club down because the the, the powers that be had, had caught wind of, of what was about to happen so he went to one of the European countries it wasn't Spain, I can't remember which one it was one of the East European wasn't countries hot, perhaps oh. where he continued his work, I don't know where he is now Croatia was it Croatia um, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube if you want to check out Rick Simpson, there's also a lot of scams We'll probably get people in the comments, even on this video, saying, buy Rick Simpson genuine oil here. Yeah. Because I've done other cannabis videos, and all those have come on in the comments and this scam, so be aware of that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so so 
keep going then with so we you, you learned about Rick Simpson so because of the way that the the cancer was going it was you know and because we felt so helpless and Steve decided to research you know we researched everything and everybody sends you stuff from broccoli to apricot seeds to cannabis and We've been stoned. I've been stoned most of my life, and um, had had the idea that everybody wanted to get it legalized. It was just a bunch of stoners wanting to get it legalized, really. And yeah, I'm right behind that. All freedom. <laughs> I didn't think it was a medicine. I didn't believe it was a medicine until we researched it, and we've we watched so much stuff about Rick Simpson and all the other stuff, and Mashulam, the the doctor who discovered the endocannabinoid system, and in the 60s. Was know, that the doctor out of Israel? Yes, Dr. Yeah. Raphael Mashulam. Yeah, he's done some great work. He's fantastic. He, d- he wanted to basically know why THC makes you high, and because you can't have anything happen to you if there's no receptor, so he worked on that, so there we found all that. So we did all that, and then um, we got... Three kilos of weed, I think it was, and poured a load of alcohol over it. Steve and his mate did it in the back garden with a fan. But we did it the Rick Simpson way, and there is a way to do it. You have to do it the right way. You have to use the right alcohol because you need the extraction, and that alcohol is the and gets burned off. So it has to be the that type, you know, very high. So what is the complete process? Oh, <laughs> you um, you take all the weed, you pour all the alcohol over it, and you cook it. And so slow down a second you, then. So you got the weed in what? In a in a bowl, in a in a big pot, in a rice cooker. In a rice cooker. Yeah. And then you pour ninety nine percent alcohol all over that, so you wreck the weed. How much alcohol would you put in for how much weed? I don't know. How much? I think it was ethanol. Ethanol. I. What's the ratio of um, weed to ethanol? Uh, it was too long ago. I think it was like two to one. Two to one. Yeah. And are you buying a particular type of weed to do this with, or is it just? We got some organically grown weed because where we are in Spain, a lot of people grow weed, and it's good weed. There are people who are quite, you know, um, particular about it and grow good weed. So we had friends who grow weed, and um, so it's like hydroponic. It's not like no, no, in the sun, proper, proper, like. Um, Indica, um, high THC content uh, bud. Okay, so you got it in the rice cooker. You got your ethanol. What do you do? Pour it over and cook it. And you put. When a, you say cook it, what does that mean? Uh, you heat it up so that the ethanol. I think there's a process where it extracts it and makes like a tar. So that cooking. So you just turn the rice cooker on. Yeah, you have to watch it. Obviously, because it's alcohol, yeah, and it stinks. So you have to have a fan. It's poisonous ethanol. And so you um, got a fan outside, yeah, a rice cooker with a load of weed cooking, getting blacker and blacker. Are you doing this outside? Yeah, because of the fumes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then you have to burn the alcohol off. So and it's it's a very. Um, you have to be very careful because either you burn all your oil that you've just extracted or you leave alcohol in it. You leave ethanol in it, solvent. <sighs> and that's obviously not what you want to do. So you've got to be a chemist to do all this. You've got to be very careful and have a temperature thing and make sure that it's, you know, that way. What's the process for burning it off? Uh, just literally cook it and it's uh, and watch it. it constantly. Yes, and watch it. And, and I think there's a temperature gauge that goes in it so you can tell, you know, what temperature... 
because they know, scientists know what time. So once know. that's burnt off, is that the end of the process? You, yeah, the oil is left. So that's the oil that you have. And I think three kilos gives you 60 grams, I think, or half. Three kilos will give you 60, 60 grams. doesn't look very much, though. 60 grams of oil isn't very much. So um, anyway, we made it and started. I started to take it. When you say you started to take it, how did you take it? How much? Uh, where were you learning that information from? So we were just going on what the internet said. And the Rick Simpson oil treatment is it starts off with half a grain of rice size. And you do that for two or three days. And then you, incre- you double it. And you do that for three days. Then you double that. So this is like sticky marmite kind of stuff, right? How you even are able to see what half a grain is. So we had a little toothpick and sometimes it was like, oh, that looks like a battle. So there were times when I was completely out of my off my face, um, taking too much. It's And I can smoke a lot. So if you do a grain of that oil, high THC content, what is the equivalency in smoking joints, you would say, from the high? Oh, Jesus, you have to like bong it as, as like you have to be, be doing um, Joey Diaz, so you, you know, kind of so, like <laughs> fucking smoking that shit. It's really strong. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Yeah. You've seen Steve, yeah. big guy, right? He's been a stoner all his you know, life. He was in a band, played all that hardcore, all that sort of stuff. He went to the dentist and had to have a tooth extracted and then he had to have a tooth implanted. So he's very good at the dentist. He can zone out. I'm terrified, not him. One day he, ga- he came back and he's like, he's in agony and he's, the, the, the dentist is giving him stuff that's not helping. I'm like, why didn't you take one of my capsules? It's supposed to help for pain. We hadn't researched, didn't know as much as I do now, which it, it would have, it is, it's fine. So I gave him 200 milligrams of THC and uh, he lay on the floor. After an hour, he couldn't get up off the floor. He, he was saying, you've given me LSD. You've given me. <laughs> You're tripping. <laughs> tripping. I tried to give him cake. He couldn't eat it. So then I tried to give him orange juice. He couldn't lift his hand up. He was, <laughs> he was completely KO'd for, and, and I was taking five of those a day. Wow. But your tolerance adjusted over time. It adjusts. It does adjust. Now, I've read that some people take it in other ways to avoid getting the, the, the high. They put it in the bomb. Yep. Is that something that you looked at? Definitely. I've got a few clients, a few cancer clients um, who, uh, because of where their cancer is situated, um, the research has shown that if you use the backdoor method, it's in that area. And if you get it in the right area of the rectum, you don't, it doesn't go through the digestive system. So it goes straight into the vein, it crosses the blood-brain barrier, and you can get the THC to go into the bloodstream and, and attack the cancer without feeling the high. So there is an advantage then if, it's, if it bypasses the digestive system. Does the pure stuff then go right into the bloodstream? If it's done that way, and the, and the, what what's your estimate on how much the digestive system um, detracts from the effect, and how much it, it it takes out? You can take away up to seventy percent. Up to seventy percent. Yeah, but you have to be be clever about it. So half an hour or f- so before you're going to take your medicine, eat something fatty, like something healthy if you want, or bag of chips. But something like avocado, because that gives your liver something to do. Ah. And if you eat first, 
you miss the first pass metabolism. And if you have it with uh, hemp seed oil, I believe you miss the second pass metabolism. So, But then everything goes through the third metabolism. And that's when you lose some of the ingredients. So it is better to get it directly into the blood, which is why dropping it under your tongue is tinctures are probably the most popular way um, to do it because that's a very fine membrane and it can go directly into the blood. Lots it can pe- go into your blood on just on your tongue, goes into the blood there without going into your yes. digestive system. Yes. So you know that um, heart, people who have got angina or all things, they say like spray, spray it in there. If you've got angina, put a tablet there because it's very fine and it goes in very quick. And it doesn't go through the digestive system. Wow. So, yeah. But when you get higher and higher doses, it's hard to keep a gram of thick, sticky tar in your mouth because it won't go. So you've got to take it in. Okay. You're embarking on the Rick Simpson method. You're hopeful that there will be a result. How long does it take before you feel any progress? So I think we started it in the summer. So when does when does the weed finish growing? About August, isn't it? I think that's about sort of August, September. That's when the, the season is. So that's when we would have bought the weed. And then three months after that was when we got the, the December scan that said that everything was worse. So worse. now, Yeah. So you're, so think, you're even, thinking it's a waste of time. Exactly. I'm thinking everything's a waste of time. And I'm thinking, is this actually because – he made it in the garden, you know, can we really trust it? Is this something that I should be doing? Is it going to fuck up the, the, the German um, treatments? You know, what am I doing here? And uh, nothing's working anyway. And then when we went back to Germany, when we went, so we went home over Christmas and New Year, and then the next time we went to Germany, there was a lady there called Vanessa, and she was married to a banker, a London banker, very wealthy family. Um, her family were all doctors and you know that sort of thing so she came from a long line of people who were well educated super smart woman she got um triple negative breast cancer with immediate liver and bone metastasis i believe i believe i think it was definitely some metastasis immediately two kids one is going through university um so she did a lot of things first she did a lot of things to help herself but she researched cannabis And she found a company in Holland that made top-grade organic Rick Simpson oil um, for uh, a non-profit organization. So she took herself off, Mrs. Posh, to the north of Holland, um, arrived at this random station in the middle of nowhere, and a a, a taxi burst into tears because it's like, oh, God, I'm going to see a drug lord, and it's, you know, what am I doing? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so just completely just, like, panicked. A taxi driver came up. She says, oh, I'm looking for this place. And she, and he says, oh, I know where it is. Hop in. And chatted and took her there. Anyway, we met her. And uh, she was telling everybody in the clinic about, you need to be on this stuff. This is what's going to help you. Yep, just take a capsule. She told this guy from um, Hawaii who had been in the Air Force, uh, in the uh, American Air Force, oh, you'll be fine. Just take one of these. Oh, my God. He was like the next day. He was like, Jesus Christ, the rabbit holes, the rabbit holes. I went down like this. (laughs) Big guy. So, yeah. So, Vanessa told us all about that and the company. And so, we contacted them and we found out all about it. And I started taking their stuff. What was the cost? 
um, about two thousand or three, two and a half thousand for the full treatment. I think it was then. Which would last you how long? Sixty days, ninety days. 60 days. grams. Uh, uh, their their non-profit um, organization allows it to be about two and a, two and a half grand, which is... To cover their costs. Which is what it should be. Yeah. Because it doesn't... I know how much it costs to make because we made it. And it doesn't cost six, seven, eight grand, you know. And, and if somebody is in that situation, if you can do it, then you should do it. You should help them. So you had your experiment, which you had thought had failed, but it may have actually needed more time. Yes. You go back to Germany. I imagine that when you went back to Germany, you'd stop taking the oil because you thought it hadn't worked. I know. I, I, I continued to take it Oh, you continued to anyway. take it. I, st- I continued to take it anyway, but I only stopped taking it while I was literally in G- in Germany in case of the treatments and, and other stuff. And we didn't tell our oncologist to start, my oncologist to start with. So the lady at the center who's raving about it now makes you think, right, maybe I messed up on the recipe. We can get the pure stuff guaranteed. And it comes Holland. in doses. It comes in capsules and, you know, yeah. So did you then have a re- renewed enthusiasm for that after the disappointment of the first trial yes and 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 other things that happened i'd um i'd started on this new um thc medicine i'd also started a new treatment which was um a nuclear treatment and um the oncologist that was at that clinic um decided to open his own clinic in stuttgart which was a much much better plan because well, lots of reasons. So, yeah, so the beginning of 2015 started with renewed vigor. And um, and I started taking it like a rock star with a cocaine habit, basically. I was taking up to, to, to because it was, I had to take the full treatment in three months. And sometimes you don't want to, you know, because you get really, really fucked up and for a long time. And you're, you just want to like... So sometimes I wouldn't, I'd push it to the start of it and then I'd end up having to take two grams a day before I went to Germany. So, yeah, I was taking it. Did you not think about the backdoor method then to stop the effects for I yourself? Liked, I like the effects. <laughs> you like the effects? <laughs> to be honest. Okay, so <laughs> when did you start to notice an improvement in the cancer? The first, uh, the first time was actually... June 2015, so a year and a half really after. So six months, well, that was when we officially had the result and that was when the first, the, the, the cancer started to um, reduce. How do you know it was the oil and not the other treatments? Because in Dennis Hill's case, when he researched it, he said people all over the world have taken the oil, but they've all also had various other treatments there's never been an example of somebody who just did the oil. And um, so he was that example. He didn't do any other treatment at all. How could you differentiate your results then if you're having multiple treatments? In the beginning, I couldn't. And in the beginning, I believe, to, I still believe, that the combination was what did it. I, I think you will be very, very lucky if you just pick one model of anything 
I don't just mean THC or anything else. I think if you, I think you need to. You're a multicellular complex being, and you have got cancer for not just one reason. So there will be four or five. So you have to get rid of stress and you have to look at your life and you have to look at what you've suppressed and you have to see, like, why have I got it there and not there kind of thing. And that's part of it as well. And so for me, I felt that because I was taking a Rick Simpson oil treatment every every three months with a month break and I still had cancer. So I couldn't believe that the Rick Simpson oil treatment was the, the ultimate answer and silver bullet to this. And because there's so many different types of cancer and there's so many different types of people and their attitudes and everything else that goes with it, you're really asking a lot of one thing. And I think this chap you mentioned may have taken only the Rick Simpson or did only take the Rick Simpson oil treatment but I would imagine that he would have done other things like meditate maybe his food was was uh, his diet improved you know he was walking in 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 the naked in the sunshine vitamin d is extremely important in cancer care you know those sorts of things so that's still a multi-targeted approach in my in my um, opinion um so I don't think that to start with, it was just the cannabis that did it. Just come forward a little bit. Oh, you, I keep you're sliding away. back. Sorry. The microphone. <laughs> He's freaking out. Um, I don't, I don't, I, uh, I've lost my train of thought. You are saying that all of the different um, treatments combine to give you the result, but you gave a holistic example of getting enough sunshine, getting enough food, organic food, and doing all these other things. And, and, and the positive mental attitude as well that you need, you don't want to release in those stress chemicals. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I got that. I got all of that. I mean, there was a psychiatrist on, on standby. You know, I had every part of me was, could be looked after. So I don't know. At the beginning, I think that the... Immune therapies were targeting the cancer. And so that, plus we need to remember also that CBD and THC and cannabis medicine helps all other medicines work better. It increases their efficacy. So you take chemotherapy and you take CBD and your chemotherapy is going to work better than it did only on its own. And do you know the actual chemical explanation of why that works like that? Yes, because... Everything gets metabolized. And so you have these enzymes that metabolize things. So you've got like GPR 55, different, whole different enzymes. And they're all fighting to be metabolized. They all want to, 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 to do it. Explain what metabolized means. Oh, okay. <laughs> Changes, basically, from one thing to another. Um, so from being inactive and unusable to being active and used by the body. Uh, the liver will take toxins or anything that you give it through the blood and into the blood. There's a blood supply into the liver. And then the liver is basically a metabolizer. It changes things and then releases them into the blood again so that they can be used in different parts of the body. Uh, medicine is metabolized by the liver. Uh, that's why a lot of people end up with liver problems when they take a lot of medicine or kidney problems as well. It's also another thing. Alcohol. Uh, yeah. 
alcohol, which is why you don't want any ethanol or alcohol left in your Rick Simpson oil. Ah, I see. So, so when CBD comes along, it can either inhibit the other medicine from going in as fast, and so you've got more left, and so it's a longer, you have it longer in your body, so it lasts longer, uh, or it's, or it's, um, yeah, no, that's pretty much what it does, as far as I understand. Okay, so you're getting positive results for the first time. How did that feel? That felt really good and and very surprised because I just expected it always to just be, maybe it would last a little bit longer, but you I just... just thought you'd get to prolong your life. You didn't yeah. think you were going to no. have a reversal of everything. No. And because it, it was improving, did you still think that this is just a prolongation then? Did it get? Where was the crossover where you realized this is going away. I I got a stable result, which basically means the cancer is exactly the same as it was the last time we looked, which is fantastic in cancer world. But I thought it was terrible because I was then used to having it always less and less. And then I got another stable result, which was a little bit disappointing, but by then I realized it was okay. And then when we got a good result, no, it was then. I was sitting in my kitchen with the fire on and everything and we were smoking weed and um, I realized I'm going to fucking survive this. I think I'm actually going to, we were like, wait, I'm going to actually do this. I'm going to, I'm going to live. I might even get rid of this. This is, oh shit. What am I going to do with my life? I'm going to actually have to do something. I get a job (laughs) or I can't just waft about having this, you know, and expecting to die at some point and not having to worry about the future because now I have to like think, oh, what am I going to do? And then I thought, I don't really want to do anything. (laughs) I just like taking cannabis. And I was by then really positive about it. I was telling people about it and I was learning about why it helps you and how it fixes you. And so I got to see a lot of people die and with families and young, old, children, no ba- no boundaries. And so I thought, well, that's what I have to do. I have to just sell cannabis oil and tell people how to take it and help people and and tell the word and spread the word because we didn't know what we were doing and we were guessing and we were lucky. I was lucky to get the results that I got because, of, you know, we, we just happened to be there. Our friends happened to make good weed. We happened to find this. We met Vanessa. You know, there was a lot of stuff. I, I was able to go to one of the most expensive clinics in the world and experience what you can do to, to help yourself. And so I got this big sense of responsibility, really, to plus I'm unemployable. No one's going to employ me. A, I take too much weed. And B, when you hear pancreatic cancer, people sort of go, oh, they do the head thing. Oh, oh, that's a bad one. (laughs) So So, could could you expand on what Dennis Hill said there? Perhaps you can give a lot more details as to the mechanism. So um, from my novice um, research into it, he said, just just, I'll try and do this briefly as possible, not, not be scientific, that the THC oil 
makes the cancer release a signal to identify itself so your immune system can kill it. And that the CBD oil um, stops it from spreading, metastasizing, is it? CBD can help, but it does have anti-tumoral properties. But what THC actually does mm. to a tumor cell. Mm-hmm. So I'll explain what a cell has. Mm-hmm. A, every cell in your body has like pock marks around it. And those pock marks are like locks. And they send out little signals for keys to come. And those keys then attach themselves to the lock and a, and a reaction happens that tells something in the cell to do something. So no cell will do anything until something tells it to by its environment. So you get a vitamin C floating around and your cell wants a vitamin C, sends out a signal, vitamin C comes, and then the reaction that happens when a vitamin C comes to your cell, your whatever it does to your cell happens. And amazingly, tumor cells have cannabinoid receptors on them. So they are still our cells and our cells that have basically not taken one for the team. So that means... A normal healthy cell will divide. When it divides, it has to divide absolutely perfectly. If it, doesn't beca- if it isn't absolutely perfect, it has a mechanism in it called apoptosis, which is cell suicide. So you, pr- you produce your, your cell and it's a bit twisted and thing. You just go, you just go oh, that's it. So that mechanism is, in, is inbred in every single one of our cells. Cancer cells have switched that mechanism off. So there is no cell suicide. That's why they've proliferated and they've mutated and Mm. they can still grow because the cell kills itself if it does that normally. So cancer cells have switched that off. The second thing that cancer cells do that other cells don't do, other cells have already got a healthy infrastructure. Our bodies are multicellular organism. Cancer is a single cell organism. Our multicellular organism has streets and schools and bloodlines and everything else that it's connected to. Here comes a cancer cell. It doesn't have anything like that because it's not supposed to be there. So now it needs things, though, because it has to grow. So it forms – one thing that it does is it forms a funny little protein on the outside, which is a cloak. And it can't, and and the vein thinks it's part of the body. Oh, you're starving. Oh, come in. And it sort of goes, oh, that protein, that fits with us. And so creates a blood supply for that cancer cell. The cancer cell can also form its own angiogenesis, little weird zombie-like veins that attach to a blood supply. Mm. So it, ki- it stops killing itself. It creates its own blood supply and it proliferates. So whenever you get a cancer diagnosis, they'll give you a proliferation rate. Either it's fast or slow, aggressive or, or not. So those, those three things are the characteristics of, of a cancer cell main that, that THC can affect. So THC will come and it'll reignite the apoptosis. So it'll ki- tell that cancer cell you need to kill yourself because you're a wrong'un. Or it'll, and it stops the angiogenesis. So it stops the cancer cell from making that weird protein and it stops the cancer cell from making any actual veins mm. and it stops the proliferation. Mm. So those are the three things that THC in a scientific, in a science, a petri dish every single time will do to a cancer cell. But the THC is more effective working in tandem with the CBD. That's called the entourage effect. 
So, what is the entourage effect? When we extract the oil from the plant, we extract we we extract all the oil. So within that, there's over 140 different cannabinoids: CBD, G, Z, N, THC, THCA, all the acid versions, all sorts of all of them. The genetics of the plant have determined what exactly those cannabinoid amounts all are. So, just remind me of what your question was. What is the entourage effect? Right. So, um, the all these cannabinoids together make the primary cannabinoid more uh, effective. When you isolate a molecule like CBD, which is what the pharmaceutical companies have done, you isolate that molecule, you're expecting that molecule to do all the work all by itself. And so in order for it to do all the work all by itself, you need a shitload of it. So you, when they extract the, the, the isolate, CBD, they need a lot of it. But CBD actually functions pretty damn well with its mates. It, we're all bigger than the sum of our parts. When cannabinoids all work together, the effect is better. And it's a bit like I always use the Kanye West uh, analogy. So Kanye West turns up at his at his gig. He's got all these rappers, all these people waiting to hear him. And he comes on and he drags his own speaker on and his own thing. And he gives <laughs> it like, and he's, he's going to do a good show because he's Kanye West. And he's a pretty good, you know, singer and all that. But now imagine Kanye West when he comes with all his entourage. He's got lights and everything going and singers helping him and dressing him and doing his hair. And he's amazing. And that's what cannabis is. If you're only going to treat it with one molecule, you're going to need a lot of it, and it's not going to work as better as be, as well. And you said, um, how do you pronounce it? Cannab can say it. Cannabinoid. Cannabis. No, cannabinoid. 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 So, what is the cannabinoid system? Endocannabinoid system. What is the endocannabinoid system? That is a system of receptors. Two sets of receptors. A receptor, remember, on a cell is, the, is, a, is a lock. There's all different types of receptors. So he, they have identified two sets, CB1 receptors, which are a certain shape, and are found in the brain and the central and peripheral nervous system. CB2 receptors are in every other bit of your body, on every other cell, every single cell in your body, except in the amygdala, which is where... Uh, the opiate receptors are, but we can do that later. So, the in, in especially the immune system. So, CBD cells are clustered in the immune systems, of which there are four places in your body where they are, kind of thing, and every other cell in your body. So, that's why, uh, so that's the endocannabinoid system. The system creates its own cannabinoids and releases them. Those are called endocannabinoids, internal, within. And the plant has got phytocannabinoids, which mirror exactly all our endocannabinoids are found in the plant. They're the same. So we have THC in the plant. We have anandamide in the body, which is the endocannabinoid. CBD is 2-AG. So we have... So the endocannabinoid system, how come people aren't taught about that in medicine? It sounds like it's really significant. It's very significant in the body because its responsibility is homeostasis. So homeostasis is balance. 
and every system in your body has to be functioning healthily so that it can all work as a synergistic whole. When one system or one like your say your immune system is not functioning or your um your skeletal skeletal system isn't functioning um it's going to steal from other systems in your body so your body will break down and become unbalanced the endocannabinoid system is this incredibly intricate system of balance so something happens in a brain cell, for example, a brain cell has five or six listeners. So other brain cells which are attached to it. So say this brain cell becomes, he's just like, I want to play some heavy metal. <laughs> and he's sending all these signals down to this little listener who's going like, oh, this is just too much, too much. <laughs> so that cell send, makes cannabinoids. <laughs> On just on the one bit which is connected to the noisy bastard, the rest are fine. But that cell makes those, the endocannabinoid system realizes, this cell's in trouble. We need to give him some help. So, he, so that if you have a functioning endocannabinoid system, healthy system, then your body functions well with everything in, internally working well together. And that is crucial in our in our age in our you know in our in our energy levels in our lifestyle it, it, it's crucial to have a, a body like that so why don't they learn about it well it was really only sort of discovered in the sort of 60s i believe that's when um, Raphael Mashulam was really looking at it but 1980s and you know it sort of became to be but i don't think they well, they didn't put the money into it because it's a, it's it's not um, it's a plant. Well, in America, wasn't all research into it banned unless you went through one university, and that university was only interested in experiments that showed the harm caused by cannabis. There, I mean, all the research was really has been come from Israel. You know, and Israel and America, but um, so the Americans locked it down for decades since Harry Anslinger. The pharmaceutical companies pay a lot of money to lobby the Senate, and apparently the money is in the millions to lobby against cannabis. Um, but every uh, medicine, pretty much that we have, started off. They they synthesized a plant molecule. Most of the me- most of the medicine started off as a plant, so that's what they want to do with cannabis. They want it to be like they've got two products that they sell on in in general market, um, but it has to be pharmaceutical grade. So it's phenomenally expensive. Um, so. One of the biggest pot plants in Europe is owned by GW Pharma. Are you familiar? Sativex. What is Sativex? What does it do? Sativex has actually been available to the UK patients since 2014, I believe, in Wales. And Sativex is a one-to-one. So it is if in it's a one molecule of CBD to one molecule of THC. Oh. That's what Sativex is. But the the CBD is an isolate and the THC is a synthesized THC. So there's no entourage effect. No, exactly. Well, 
that works for MS patients. It does work for MS patients. It's a spray under the tongue, but it's $64,000 a year per patient. So that's not going to be prescribed very often. Because Montel Williams, he was raving about it. And he's been a big activist for research into the medicinal properties of the plant. I saw him talking in um, Israel, I think, either Israel or London. We went to Canatech. Really? What did he say? He was talking about his journey with with MS and, um, and, you know, it took him a long time to get there, but now he's a big activist. Yeah. Yeah, he's doing great work. So you went to the stage where you didn't have symptoms anymore? Yeah, no symptoms. Okay. So when you get a stable result, uh, and then I got the second one, you get put onto a, um, you just get observed. So I stopped all medication, all the all the German medication, um, and I wasn't taking any medication here. I was only had, taking. Had you told them? Um, yes, yes. What, we, what, what we was what was their reaction when you told them? Oh, we already sell it. They they do dronobinol and marinol. They do that in Germany, okay. which isn't real, but it's it's the pharma version without the effect again. Yeah. yeah, so they know it works. And my results were my my body was handling all the medicines, all the treatments. I wasn't having the effects that other people were having, and I was having really good results. So they were well happy. So were the other people at the center wanting to copy what you were doing then? Did you become like there were a, a, Yeah, there were a few people who, you know, but um, there were a few people who, who did it, yeah. And did they have similar results? I think you really have to commit to it. And um, they were very sick. You know, they were very, very sick. I mean, one girl, it was a shame, Tash, she came from Australia and she had breast cancer in her 40s, you know, the the estrogen receptive or triple negative, one of the two. She had come to Germany. Her parents, it was a very sad story, had lost their eldest daughter to a car crash. They had got some money for that. And so they put all of that money into her treatment in Germany. And she did really well. She was doing really well. And then she went back to Australia and they did a PET CT scan over there and they found one tiny little brain metastasis in the brain and they just chemoed her to fuck and radiated her to the point where she was so ill when she came back to Germany that he couldn't even give her even liver support and yeah I think you really the message is you need to buy into this as a treatment you can't you can't just take it as an additive you can't just take it as a supplement it is important to do it if you're using it as a treatment to do it you know but there's ways of doing it in my experience over the last two years and three years of working with clients and doing this you don't have to always do the rick simpson oil treatments because one it doesn't always work but it doesn't definitely always work the first time maybe you know so it's you have to look at the person's lifestyle. You have to look at what they can tolerate. You ha- you have to take that into consideration while still telling them that you have to bite the bullet here. If you're prepared to hang over a toilet seat and vomit up everything week after week after week on chemo, then please consider taking something that's just going to make you feel a little bit cool or a bit sleepy or hungry, you know. People are so ingrained not so much the younger generations, but perhaps some of the older generations, that if you 
do anything to do with cannabis, you're going to grab an axe and try and kill your granny. That was the propaganda that the Partnership for Drug Free America put out, who was sponsored by alcohol, tobacco, and pharma. But even now, you've got in these health food shops, you've got CBD stuff advertised. And I see grannies at the till yelling at the shop staff because they've got that mindset still. Yeah. It's I've I've I'm quite lucky because I don't I'm I'm not going out to you know I'm I'm not sort of waving my flag. I'm getting people who come to me. So it's very unusual um in my work that I get anybody who's against it because they really have heard oh my granddaughter said I have had a couple of people and they just it surprises me how much it's like a religion, you know, like they must be right. I mean, if this was so good, then why wouldn't the pharmaceutical companies have it? He said to me. And yeah, well, I made the mistake of telling him what I believed and never saw him again. What was the crossover in your life then from being cured to wanting to help other people? I'm not cured yet. Okay. I, a year ago, um, I changed. Well, I changed my regime from doing all the Rick Simpson when I when I finally got partial remission, which means over eighty percent reduction. Then I changed to taking one hundred milligrams a day and more CBD. And then when I started the business, I couldn't take THC every day because ugh, you can't do it every day. Um, but I would take it once a week on a Saturday night and then just spend Sunday kished. Um, and started taking CBD every day, 20% CBD every day. Um, when I realized that I had, uh, and then and then the last scan showed that I had got rid of all my metastasis. Everything's gone. Oh, when I went to Germany, I didn't only have six to eight lesions on my liver. I had 150 because the scanners in Germany are so much better than the scanners in Spain. So actually what we were dealing with was a lot worse than we originally thought. And so that was... That was a very big shock that day uh, because the doctor was very curt, very German, didn't even look at you, looked at all this bank of computer screens and just said, he was like, oh, yeah, you've got a lot. He's screening through it. And I'm like, well, how many have I got? Because I'm thinking, well, six to eight, you know, there's not that many. And he went, oh, around about 150. Mm. Then we had a five-hour drive back to the the clinic because we were in Frankfurt, so we had to drive back. And I don't think any of us spoke for the entire five hours. Mm. It was such a show. It was such a like 150, you know. I didn't even know my liver was that big. <laughs> but yeah, so then it was when I thought realized that actually I'm going to survive this um, that made me want to do it, really. And then I really wanted to sell THC because I was all about THC because I'd cured, you know, I'd got rid of most of my cancer. Who were the first per- people that you helped? Were they people that you knew personally? Or? Um, there was, well, uh, I had a neighbor um, who I used to walk the dogs and I'd sometimes meet her and her dogs were stressed off there. You know, they were mad and her husband had had cancer and she'd heard about the THC and CBD. And so we were talking about it one day and then she said, oh, I've got a friend. Um, her father's got Alzheimer's. Um, I want to talk to her and talk to you about that. So I was like, well, I've done the research. I would started, you know, learning it all and everything else. And so I gave it to her to give to her, fa- her friend's father. And about four months later, I was, you know, five, six months later, 
I'd been supplying that twenty that twenty percent, and um, from somewhere else, and they came to my house to pick it up one day, and the son actually came out. I'd never ever met him or the father. I'd only ever met the girl, and he got out of the car and he had tears in his eyes and he said, "I just wanted to tell you that I've got my father back because of you." Oh my God! Yeah. Wow. And that's what I hear. Yeah. Quite a lot. Like. Two days ago, I was at a client's house, and he had late diagnosis, bipolar and ADHD. He's in his 30s. He's got two kids. The family's in chaos. Everybody's really stressed. He's really like, he's on so this massive cocktail of pharmaceuticals. You wouldn't believe. You really wouldn't believe. And so I said, okay, we, we went through the whole consultation. We talked about everything, what we can hope to achieve, what we can do. And I got a phone call. We need more oil. <laughs> And can I have some balm? <laughs> and so I went and saw them and they said, you won't believe what you've done for us. You, and it's, it's not me, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it, it just disgusts me that the THC oil is illegal in this country. Those evil bastard politicians causing people to suffer unnecessarily when the medicine is right available right there just to, just to preserve pharmaceutical company profits. Well... There's no money in a cure. There we know that. Even Goldman Sachs says that, you know, publicly. But I believe it's criminal. I believe it's criminal. And and it's complete hypocrisy and complete bullshit because there are there are politicians whose other halves are the biggest investors in GW pharmaceuticals and they're a they're a, they're lead, led the fucking country. And she's turning around and saying, there's no medical science that proves it. There's over 30,000. Um, if you look on PubMed, PubMed is a published medical journal by peer-reviewed um, papers. There's over 30,000 peer-reviewed papers. There's so much medical um, scientific evidence it's, there's no reason for you to say that this is Do you have any politicians bullshit. in mind you want to name and shame? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about them. I really don't. I don't care about them. Um, what is the legality of THC oil in Spain? Illegal. It's illegal? Yep. So, by your own admission, you're breaking the law? Every day. And what is your safeguard against the uh, consequences of that? Come and try and arrest me. Me try, just what are you going to do? You know, I'll um, yeah. go to prison for that. I don't give a fuck. Rick Simpson um, was harassed constantly. Have you been harassed? No, no, never, really never. No, yep. I yep. mean, yep. I think maybe because if you have pancreatic cancer, it's kind of like people people don't want to really attack you. Um, no one has ever said anything to me about taking the oil. Because I'm better, you know, I'm better. And because I help a lot of people in my area, they're kind of like, I'm, you know, they look after me. They, they care about me. They worry about me um, because they can play golf again or they, they, don't, they don't have sleepless nights anymore. They don't, they don't have anxiety um, I've, got a, I've got a couple who have had a really difficult two years, lost you know, family members and things like that. And you know what? I'm going to walk away from that. I'm going to, I'm going to say to people, yeah, no, sorry, it's illegal. It was America that imposed these drug laws in the entire world. It was Harry Anslinger through the United Nations said to every country, 
you either make all these drugs illegal or America's not going to trade with you. But it's America that ha is reversing it now. Now, that's not the government. That's the people voting at the state level. They've maintained weed as a Schedule One substance, federal level, more harmful than cocaine, with no medicinal value whatsoever. That's where it is to this day. On the line, yeah. Now, the people at the state level voting for it, they're sick of the mass incarceration of potheads, which was almost a million a year for weed possession to fill the private prisons. Mm. Teenagers getting thrown in prisons where they end up on heroin, joining Nazi gangs and, and other racial gangs. And now you've got um, the little babies that have seizures and can go into a coma and die. So these evil bastard politicians who've held it down, they can't go up against a sick baby. So you've got the example of Charlotte, like the Charlotte's That's oil. Right. Yeah. Um, do you think that the floodgate is opened now because of this and the whole world will legalize and decriminalize and the full medicinal values will be given back to the world? Or do you think that the establishment that profits from the status quo will fight tooth and nail to hold the profits down? I think that it will all be available. I think like America, they'll all make it legal and they'll all of that. But I do think that they will try and contain it uh, so that you, you know, so like morphine, you know, like heroin, you can't, you, it's, it'll, it, it'll be a morphine type substance, you know, where you have to get a prescription for it, maybe. But I don't know, you know, I'd like to believe that it will be more free than that. I mean, you've got to go, you've, you, you've, you see it in America, like Colorado's green emerald city. It's, it's, it's functioning very well with its tax dollar. Thank you very much. And I think that's what will make people change their mind. But they are being lobbied by the pharmaceuticals who are, you know, they've got Epidiolex, which is the epilepsy drug, which is CBD. That's all it is. But it's isolated. And it's going to cost you 32 grand if your child is sick. You know, I've got a bottle of 76 euro CBD oil that will do exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that the Partnership for a Drug-Free America was financed by pharma, alcohol and tobacco. But now we've seen the rise of the Canadian cannabis companies and we've seen a huge beer company and a huge tobacco company buy major stakes in two of the biggest Canadian Cannabis companies, I'm talking about um, Canopy Growth and Cron, Kronos Group. Um, I do follow these in the stock market, and I've, Cron was down almost at six recently, and Canopy Growth was below 20. I did put a video on YouTube saying I think that the, 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 they're cheap here um, now. But do you think if those industries that have traditionally fought against and put all this propaganda out are now investing in cannabis companies, that's a sign that that battle is, 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 is over. Yeah, basically. I think they've seen the light. They can see what the, you know, people are buying it because it works. It's not snake oil and it, it makes a lot of money. And there's a lot of people who want to drink beer or want to drink something, you know. So they'd be fools not to do it. But the tobacco, tobacco companies are super smart. You know, when they put the laws out for, to, to write on your, on your pack that this is going to kill you or whatever, their, their profits dropped considerably. So what did they do? Buy 
food companies mm. like Kraft mm. and use the same business model. They just put the chemicals that they put in the fags to make it more addictive. They put the same chemicals in the food. And so the food becomes addictive. So sugar gets into your system. So America's addicted to sugar. And that's, that's what the that's what tobacco companies have done. So they just followed the same model. Now, my oncologist believes that it's the food that's causing ca- so the, the cancer rates to rise so much. He believes that it's the chemicals in the food. When you've got a $5 billion industry on chemicals, just chemicals, $5 billion of chemicals go into Americans' food in 2000, went into in 2016. Who are the sickest people on the planet? The Americans. And who spends the most money on healthcare? The Americans. Americans. 70% of people in America have been and bought an over-the-counter drug. There's like, there's like Macy's department store of, of, of drugs that you can walk in and I was, hmm, I wonder which color, red or blue today. You can't be doing stuff like that. Antidepressants, statins, you name it. Um, so I interviewed Sonia Poulton, who has got a documentary about the cancer industry. Do you believe that there is a cancer industry? Yes. And what is the can- cancer industry as far as you understand it? Well, it's an enormous industry because there's everything that, you know, I mean, even in needles and, you know, syringes and all that sort of stuff. stuff. But medic- medicines cost a lot of money. And I know it's a cancer industry because you can, if you're, if you're an industrial company, global, you're going to be able to sell your stuff here and there, but at different prices. And it's the same with the cancer drugs. So they're just using it as a business model. So it's definitely an industry. And there's a lot of drugs that are sold. Chemo is the most expensive drug in the, in the world. A round of chemo and a round of radiation will set you back $100,000. <sighs> just one round. Just one round. So and people the, what, think it's like, oh, chemo, we'll just go for another chemo. We'll have loads of chemo. They don't, be, they don't understand. This is the most expensive drug that so they're what, making money from. What's the profit from. margin on that? Astronomical. I yeah. I mean, when you look at the – well, one of the pharmaceutical companies did a cure uh, for, one of, for um, one of the hepatitis things. I forget all the details. And In, they lost – Interferon, was it? I think so. And they lost something like six, 300 million – in profit, net profit, I think three hundred million or in or billion in net profit, something along, they along those, all those lines. People. Because they cured it, and Goldman Sachs turns around and goes, "There's no money in a cure." <gasps> Look what happened there. That oh. and quoted that exact situation. So it's not even like we don't know. It's not even like we can say we're ignorant of this. But it's a very, very powerful industry because you can't go anywhere unless you go to a doctor first. You can't go to just go and see an oncologist. You have to go to a doctor first, and they have to set you set you back a whole bunch of pills before they can send you to any specialist. You've got to try this pill first and that pill first, and then eventually you can go. But unless you've got money, you can go to whoever you want. You can't. So they say a prevention is better than a cure. We've got an increasingly toxic environment. We've got more technology and electrical stuff around us than ever before. The phone's getting more powerful, the 5G. Mm. If someone came to you and they were just living the normal, you know, rat race lifestyle, like like most people are, um, eating the lousy food, on the devices all day, inside the computer desks, um, what would be the advice you would give them to even out their life, to boost their immune system? Get on the CBD. Just get on, get on the CBD. I mean... 
dependent on your, you know, everything. I mean, normally, if you just want to protect yourself, a nice kind of 5 to 10%, couple of drops a day, ongoing. I've got cancer. I live in, in Spain. I have a lovely life. Um, m- there's a lot of old people around me. Old people get sick. There's a lot of flus and things. I haven't had, I haven't had a cold or a flu in over two years because I take CBD every day. <laughs> I've got a lot of brain degeneration diseases in my family, and this is a neuroprotectant. So I take CBD every day. When people come to me and they say, you know, they – Mainly people come because one of the one of them is ill. And then the other person I'm like, okay, so you're dealing with the stress of that and you know, maybe you should think about this. And quite a lot of people are taking it just for general health and well being and as a protectant. And can people purchase these things from you? Yeah. Um what is your uh, how would they do that? Online. I have a website online. So I'm going to put the link for your website in the description box below this video. Okay. Did you bring any of your products with you today? I haven't, no. I didn't bring any. Um, could somebody, are you all right, Steve, just to grab my briefcase because I've got those things in. Are we okay to show those on camera? Yeah. Okay, let's, um, we'll, we'll, we'll do that now. So that's the, the CBD-only bombs? Yes. <laughs> so... Um, in Spain and here in England, there is a law that if you put anything in your mouth, you have to have a license to sell that. It's got a lot of flaps on it. Do you want me to do it? <laughs> <laughs> it's got like 10 different places to put things from my old drug trafficking uh, days. <laughs> yeah, so here we go. You want to show these to the camera and explain what they are? Um, so this is a, a basic bomb, which um, has a, a very simple recipe. Um, I can't open it because I'm going to just hold it. I'll hold it up to the okay. camera. Um, it's a basic, very basic uh, recipe, if you like. Um, the most important part is, is the CBD, which is uh, quite potent. There's half a gram, 500 milligrams of CBD in it. And that helps with a lot of different things which have got inflammation or bone pain, um, arthritis, skin conditions, hair and face moisturizers, things like that. But the amount of CBD in that is quite important because... (laughs) Will it cure baldness? I didn't realize that was a disease. (laughs) I thought you were just going to rub it on your head there. It's quite refreshing. It's all it's nice. It's all organic. I mean, it's all everything. You can actually eat it if you want to, but I mean, it's not going to be very nice. But yeah, it's Looks uh, like butter. Yeah, it's can of butter. I mean, it's 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 you know, they make can of butter and it's basically, you know, you sort of it's um high-grade CBD. Um it's not standard European CBD, which is less than 0.2% THC. Um it, which is grown from hemp plants because it's got very little THC in it. But this is grown from a marijuana plant where the genetics uh, determine that the CBD is about 95%. So that's, that's, it's good. It's good for acne. It's good for arthritis. I get a lot of people who, who get good results with it. So if the cops find people with this product, do they sometimes hassle them because they don't understand the difference between CBD and THC? You know, it's a medicine that people use as a dropper or they use as a suppository. So generally speaking, people who are taking them as medication, they're not really out and about. 
you know, they're at home taking their medicine. So, no, no one, no one, I mean, unless you're smoking a joint. And in California, there's a whole different array of different ways you can take it. So you can vape it and smoke it and do all sorts of conduct. I think you can smoke it in California, but you know what I mean. And um, then it's out there in, 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 you know, but everywhere else it's not. People are taking it quietly or you know or they or the whole bowling club is practically on it you know the the lawn bowls um they talk amongst themselves but no because there was some movement at one point in time i don't know it was some farmer or what companies to criminalize cbd oil to classify it as a, a dangerous drug and to, so that people couldn't access it well what they've done is they've now met well they've made the, the novel foods list so it used to be on the novel foods list um which means that it's it's something like a supplement you can prove that it was taken as a food before a certain date so we could sell cbd as a food supplement they changed that law in november last year uh, 2018 which effectively made selling cbd illegal mm. you can take it there's no problem with that. You can have it yourself, but you can't sell it because, well, in Spain anyway, I know um, anything that you put in your mouth, you need a license. Well, there's no box for CBD, so there's no license for CBD. So in effect, I can't sell CBD to people in Spain, but I can online. And what is the name of your online business? The Healing Connection. The Healing Connection. .eu. And if people wanted to ask you a question, would they do that through the Healing Connection, or do you do you are you active on any any of the socials? Yeah, I've got a website. I've got a Facebook, um, the Healing Connection on Facebook. Yeah, uh, they can message me on Facebook, or they can contact me through the website, or I have a, a WhatsApp number. It's on, you know, everywhere. Well, I can put all those details in the description box below this video, um, so people will contact you after this. So people out there who've watched this then and are either they have cancer or they know someone with cancer, what would you say to those people? It's, well, don't go into terror mode. It's not an entity that's attacked you. You need to take your, to to drive your own ship, Okay. I think if you hand all your power over to one man in a white coat, you're putting all your chips on red and there's not much wiggle movement there. You need to work. You need to to say, this is my choice. Whatever you decide, whatever you tell me, I will take on board and I will listen to and I will research and I will go and see what else I can do to help myself. What How can I change my diet? Because a doctor will say to you, eat whatever you want, which is ridiculous but hold your own reins and listen but don't 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 be the cork being bobbed by you know by the sea if you don't do your research and you don't make a fucking effort you might probably not get through this if you just let life happen to you it's not going to help you just a quick disclaimer on top of that then. Um, this video is a personal story. And if you ha are in a medical situation, you should consult an expert. And I would recommend you can consult not just one expert, consult Definitely. as many as possible. Exactly. And get a whole range of opinion and then make your own decision, you know, 
based on all of that information that you can obtain out there from the medical experts. And if you've got any questions or comments, and if you've enjoyed this interview, um, please put them below this video. Huge thank you to all of the new subscribers. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner. Huge thank you to all people donated on PayPal, Patreon, just giving, subscribe star, so we can produce these podcasts in a studio of a sound engineer and a cameraman. And is there anything else you would like to say in conclusion? I think that this is um, very important. It's a plant that has all the same molecules that we have. It is the healing plant, and it does. it's more than just for medical reasons you know it's a mind body and soul plant and um you know i think that if you've got anybody that is struggling with with things in life or you know mental physical whatever look at it as cbd or thc cannabinoid medicine you know don't be taken in by stories and things like that it's not true this is a this is an actual scientific based medicine that can and does help people it helps cancer it helps depression you, these things are debilitating neuropathic pain anyone lives with that you it's it's a very important thing to look at it's a very important plant when these videos go up as soon as people hear anything about cannabis they just think of smoking it and they think we're telling them that if they've got cancer they got to smoke as much weed as possible to cure their cancer. So can <laughs> okay. you just, just clarify right, that situation? Don't, if you want to smoke as much weed as possible to get your mind off it, then fair enough. But it, there's, no, there's no proof that smoking weed gives you cancer. It's tobacco that gives you the cancer or, or smoking-related illnesses. No. Smoking, cancer, uh, smoking, cancer, smoking cannabis isn't that effective. For, isn't effective at all for cancer. Yeah, that's, that's, you need to take the oil and you have to take it somehow, either backdoor method or tincture, cream. You know, there's, there's, yeah, that's the oil that you need to take. So I'll just add to that that the World Health Organization does have all forms of smoke down as carcinogenic. So cancer causing all smoke, according to the World Health Organization, um, is the oil. That that, that get, um, helps the cancer it is the THC oil in particular, which is illegal in a lot of countries, including here in the UK. I know people who've had cancer and they've done other treatments and they've they've sourced the THC oil illegally, and they believe that that was a major factor in them beating it. So I'm not recommending people break the law. I'm just telling you that's the situation here in this country, and I think it's absolutely appalling. And we need to put pressure on the politicians, the hypocritical bastards who've smoked weed and done cocaine uh, when they were young and then they get in power and they prevent sick people and, and kids with seizures um, who can go into comas and die. These evil bastards prevent these little kids from getting the medicine just so they can protect corporate profits. So we need to share this uh, message, share this story, expose what's going on and um, the, the tide has turned, we believe, as we've discussed here today, with the whole world trending towards legalization and decriminalization. So I think that the power has shifted into the hands of the people in this, um, on this subject, definitely. Yeah. Because you can. It's easy to do. You know, it's, it's you, one plant 
It's two, three plants. It's really easy to grow a plant. You know, you can actually make your own medicine. If it was easy, you know, if it was free and legal, which it should be, then you're free to make your own medicine. And we've lasted, you know, the, we've had the pharmaceutical industry for 100 years. And our planet has never been sicker. Our people are so pop, overpopulated but ill. Everybody's on a medication, you know. So clearly the, the health industry isn't really working if America is spending a record amount on health care and they've got the sickest people in the world, it is working for the pharmaceutical companies only, not for the population. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, cheers from the Governor's Studio. Give me a hug. <laughs> yeah, well done. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That was great.